0: The Paul Leslie Hour. Helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. What's doing? I'm honored to have you wander in. This is the Paul Leslie Hour, and I'm your host, Paul Leslie. This is my second interview with Elliot Mintz. The first time I spoke with him was in January of 2011. It was an incredible experience for me. It was recorded in his home in Beverly Hills, California, and was originally broadcast on the radio. It also found a home on YouTube and as a podcast episode. You can look up episode number 57 of the Paul Leslie Hour for our first exchange. Elliot Mintz used to be a broadcaster. He interviewed people on radio and television. Some of the people he interviewed would include... John Lennon, Bob Dylan, Salvador Dali, Jack Nicholson, Norman Mailer, as well as people like Jack Harris and Bob Ramdas. It's really an incredible list. He's also well known as a publicist. He has represented the estate of John Lennon, Yoko Ono, Bob Dylan, Paris Hilton, David Cassidy, and others. This second interview was conducted over the telephone to celebrate and chronicle the debut of ElliotMintz.com. I can remember that night very well. It was a full moon. I'm going to go into the interview in just a moment, but if you could take just a few seconds to go to ThePaulLeslie.com and click on Support the Show. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people like you, the listeners. I thank you, and every little bit helps. So here it is, folks, my second interview with Elliot Mintz. I hope you allow yourself to really listen, to meditate on it. You might find yourself being really enchanted. It is a very interesting interview. I hope you enjoy. And now, let's get into the show.
1: I am in your hands, Paul, One more time. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Indeed. I just poured myself... My first glass of the evening, and it's a um, 2012 uh, Mekong Village Chardonnay.
2: Well, I am also drinking a Chardonnay. The last time we had a conversation of this depth, I was drinking red and you were drinking white. And now we are both drinking white wine.
1: Would you like to propose a toast of the telephone? And after you propose the toast, we'll click our glasses against the receiver.
2: (laughs) Okay, I will. May the airwaves never cease to carry your work. May the calm voice never fail. And may the whole world be privileged to mince words. Bless you. That made a lovely sound. So, ladies and gentlemen, the man I'm talking to is Elliot Mintz. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Paul.
2: Who does Elliot Mintz say that Elliot Mintz is? (laughs) Who does Elliot Mintz say that Elliot
1: Mintz is?
2: The first time we talked, I asked you, who is Elliot Mintz? And you said, depends on who you ask.
1: That, yeah.
2: I've got you now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's Czech, but not quite neat. (laughs) Because there there are others, of course, in all of our lives who have visions of who we are, what we represent to them, what we mean, uh, etc. And then there are those of us who are quite assured of who we are. I'm not. I can't answer the question because... I don't know who I am. I am working on that on a daily basis. Um, I'm a creature that uh, that changes uh, by the hour, minute, second. I can kind of subjectively discuss things that uh, interest Elliot means. Elliot means is about. I can do all of that. But the actual essence of me is still elusive. I think it was uh, Winston Churchill, Sir Winston Churchill who once said that history of all countries should be written by a citizen of a different country. So the perspective would be, from an observational point of view, and frequently uh, more accurate. The biography tends to be more accurate than the autobiography. So I, therefore, would have to return to my initial answer that I gave to you, that It depends on who you ask. I don't know, but I am not completely in touch uh, with Elliot Mintz as uh, an individual. There are two people
2: that would say that you they would have called you, when they were around, they would have called you son. Everyone on earth has that in common. We all come from a mother and a father. So, who were your mother and father? And what are your
1: strongest recollections of them? The first of the two that come to my mind is my father, because I was closest to him. A very, 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 very good man. An immigrant from Eastern Europe who arrived on the shores uh, when he was 16 years old, with just the shirt on his back and um, no particular skills a vision in a dream, escaping the madness of um, uh, what Europe was like in that time, who uh, began to work in what was called in New York the schmata business. Please don't ask me to spell it. But schmata is kind of a Yiddish word that refers to uh, clothing or fabrics. And he spent 30 or 40 years of his life as a cutter, cutting the, from patterns, what would eventually become women's coats, larger women's coats. And he eventually had a small company with his brother called A&M Fashions. Berman District was uh, five or six blocks away from Times Square in Manhattan. It was a very difficult life. It was before air conditioning. And summers in that place where my father worked, with those machines, we would cut through 20, 30 different layers or levels of fabric, you know, cotton and things like that, post-war things. I only visited him once or twice when I was a little boy. He took me downtown so I could see where he worked. And it was grimy and dirty. There were two or three employees, a bookkeeper. He would walk with those push carts through the sidewalks of Manhattan in the heat of summer, delivering his goods to people who might purchase them for retail. He did that most of his life. Towards the end of his life, he dabbled a little in real estate, buying small pieces of property with the money that he saved all of his life. He married my mother after they had a chance meeting, at a place called Gorsinger's, which was in upstate New York. It was kind of like the um, the getaway place from New York where usually Jewish couples would go to listen to any young men and to dance, to socialize. They would call it being in the mountains. And one day he met my mother there, who at that time was a bookkeeper uh, in a small restaurant restaurant slash nightclub, which she left one day telling her friends that she was going to go to Grossinger's because she wanted to find a husband. And as the story is told to me by my sister, the two of them found themselves in the same large room of what would look like a kind of country club. And there was a Sadie Hawkins dance that came on. And my mother, somewhat uncharacteristically, but I wouldn't question my sister's reportage, walked up to my father, who was at the end of the bar with a couple of his pals, and asked if he wanted to dance. And he said yes. And after a very, very brief courtship, he asked for her hand in marriage. And it was less than a year later but I appeared on the scene in 1945. My mother was a homemaker and enjoyed that role raising my sister and I. We grew up in a lower middle class neighborhood in the upper part of Manhattan. My father would wake up every morning at 6 or 6.30, board the subway, go down to the Schmock district, work until 7 o'clock in the evening, come back on the subway. He uh, would be grimy and dirty, exhausted. He would take a shower, and my mother would have food prepared on the table for the four of us to sit and have a simple meal in a two-bedroom apartment that they lived in. All of their lives, both of them passed away in that apartment. It was the one that I left when I was seventeen or eighteen. They were loving people, demonstrably loving people. They held hands frequently. They talked with each other constantly and loved to laugh. I was the first born. They had no roadmap as to what to do. My mother read Dr. Spock's book and listened to advice from my granny. She did her very best with me, and she did better with my sister. And she loved my father dearly. I remember maybe my sister told me that when my mother died of a massive unexpected heart attack in that apartment and the emergency crew arrived. As they were taking my mother away on a stretcher, she was pronounced dead in the apartment, my father asked the EMT guys to stop for a second and he got down on his knees and he touched her hand and he said thank you. My, Those were the kind of people my parents were.
2: That very touching and both sad and amazing image
1: to think of more than 50 years together, and during that period of time, I think they spent two days apart, or three days apart. It was a different time, Paul. You know it was it was what we call the real deal time, and I am certain that uh, there are relationships. I'm just pouring myself one more glass in a second. And I am certain that there are married couples today who have that kind of romantic camaraderie, but I don't run into a lot of them in the city that I call my home.
2: Yeah, a lot of people who were born in the '40s that I have interviewed, they have a very vivid, a very vivid image of the first time they saw, or they have in memory of the first time they heard the band called The Beatles. Can you recall the first time you
1: heard The Beatles? Yes, it was uh, in 1963. I had just, it was my first year in Los Angeles. And actually, it could have been 1964. I don't have an absolute clear recollection. Uh, it, it's coming to me now. It's it just the part of my beetle brain is so overloaded with stories and recollections, I confused them. (laughs) Of course, the first time I ever heard them and saw them was on The Ed Sullivan Show. So that would have been, of course, in 1963, after I had only been in Los Angeles a few months. And I turned on my black-and-white rented television set in my rather sparse little apartment that I was renting for $200 a month, I think, and I saw them perform on Sullivan.
2: What about the first time that you heard Bob Dylan? Can you recall that? Um, Or if not when, can you remember what the song was? The times
1: they were changing, and I probably heard it on the radio at that time in my life. By the way, you do know that both albums, what we refer to in America as Meet the Beatles, and Bob's first album were both released or recorded during the same month. Fascinating. So it was at a time that I don't know if I could afford to buy uh, phonograph records. I was in a very tight little budget, and um, I might not have had a stereo in that little apartment. So the likelihood is that I heard that song on the radio. And it wasn't long after that that I attended a Joan Baez concert, the Hollywood Bowl, a remarkable musical facility in Los Angeles. And at the end of the Baez concert, she said, I just want to bring on a friend of mine to sing a couple of songs for you. And she introduced uh, Bob, and he uh, came on. And he sang two or three songs, if I recall. And the audience hardly would let him lead the stage. And one of those songs could have been the times they were changing. So the first time I saw him live was very uh, within a very short time after I heard the recording. And he was a part of uh, Joan Baez's encore.
2: Our interview tonight is with Elliot Mintz. I suppose what's so fascinating about not only what you told us about the albums being around this in in the same exact month, but also the fact that you ended up meeting and having a lot of interactions with not only John Lennon, but also Bob Dylan, and then also your other interviews and your other encounters with members of the Beatles. Did you ever dream going back to the days when you first heard them? that you would one day
1: meet the Beatles and Bob Dylan? No, it never occurred to me, nor was it something that I lusted after. The fact is, I'm a really good audience. I really appreciate art. And if I look at a fabulous painting, it never occurs to me, it would be great to meet the painter. I'm just as happy looking at the work that might be hanging on somebody's wall. I read a, a marvelous novel. I don't think in that uh, fan sense, of, wouldn't it be great to meet so-and-so? And in those days, especially when I listened to music, I just felt really pleased to be able to listen to the music. But it never occurred to me. And of course, I was 17, 18, and 19. So the thought would have been rather irrational as well that I would meet uh, any of these people and in certain cases like Bob and John have uh, become friends. In the case of Bob, represent him for many, many, many years. It's not something you think of when you're 17 or 18 sitting at the Hollywood Bowl and studying broadcasting. It was fine what it was. Now upon reflection, I can tell you, whereas My years with Bob were incredibly uh, meaningful to me and inspirational, and uh, I hold him in the highest of regard, not only as an artist, but a client, a friend. He traveled around the world with Bob. We had hundreds of conversations. We spoke for a thousand hours. He was a guest at my house. I was a guest at his home. We had a very, very wonderful and marvelous relationship. However, if I had only heard his music, it would have been enough. Every, everything else was dessert. And, and also, uh, Paul, just for the, for the record, with no disrespect to the group, it's intriguing tonight as we speak under the full moon, about 25 miles from where I'm sitting. Paul McCartney is doing the concert, at Dodger Stadium, his first appearance there since the days of the Beatles, he is singing right now. I liked the Beatles, of course. Uh, you know, very few didn't. But it wasn't the Beatles that captured my imagination, as it was John and Yoko. Right. I may have been a little too old to have gotten caught up in Beatlemania. To me, it was Elvis. It was Elvis. And, uh, again, I never thought about meeting him. I never did. We passed each other by in a hallway at MGM once, but it was an intriguing passing, passing moment that is always stuck in my mind. But uh, in, in direct answer to your question, no. There, there was nobody who I, quote, wanted to meet later as my uh, professional Part of my life began to morph and expand, and I became an interviewer, and I was doing radio and television. Well, then I had a hit list of people who I did want to meet, but I wanted to meet them for the purpose of interviewing them with no expectation of becoming friends with them or hanging out with them or anything like that. It would also be a bit presumptuous on my part that some of these extraordinary people that I have encountered over the years would be at all interested in spending any time with Elliot Mintz. It takes two to tango. Before you ask the girl out on the date or ask her to go with you to the prom, the first thing that should go through your mind is, what is it about you that would excite her imagination to say yes? fascinating
2: and so that's how you that's how you look at an interaction with with a person you think about that
1: always why the heck would that person in the middle of a whirlwind if we're talking right now as we frequently do about celebrities why would John and Yoko want to spend any time with Elliot what's the big deal it's not like not like they had difficulty finding a friend so I just didn't think of it in that in capacity, and was always surprised when such things would um, work
2: out that way. Are you aware that people have said before about you
1: that you are a magnetic person? I've heard the phrase, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm not in touch with that. I'm, you know, I'm not magnetized by Elliot. Elliot doesn't attract Elliot. The magnetizing concept suggests that there is something uh, about me that draws people to me. I have a slightly different take on that, Paul. And that is, I think, that there is something out there that attracts each of us to each other, but it is removed from individual personalities. Hmm. Right now, the supermoon is embracing and touching almost everybody on planet Earth. I'm standing out of my deck now looking directly at it. It has a magnetic impact. I can't divert my attention. I can't say, well, there's the full moon. I think I'm going to go back inside my living room and look at the orchids. It got me. Well, that's the full moon in its majesty, in its mystery with all of its uh, powers to affect gravitational flows and the tides almost a quarter of a million miles away. Yes, one could say that probably about Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela and Jesus Christ and Buddha and Krishna and Moses and a variety of other people who the world or followers were attracted to. There was some kind of magnetic mystical, magical energy that just emoted from them, I acknowledge the fact that there are beings like that that have walked the planet Earth, but none of them with a name called Elliot Mintz.
2: You mentioned the moon, and when someone goes on your website, ElliotMintz.com, they're going to see that you're very much a night person. And you've posted a lot of things on social media about the moon. And I don't know if you've ever looked at mine. You've probably noticed that I also share your fascination, and yes, I would use the word love for the moon. Hmm. What do you think about when you look up
1: at that moon? And I have looked at your website, and I do understand your appreciation for the moon. And look, this is something. It's not a private club. This is something shared by so many of us. Just do a YouTube search of songs having to do with the moon. Yes, And it is one of the essential things that you will see is how closely the moon is related to the concept of love. Interesting. Even more so than sunshine. So it is, with all due respect to somebody like Stevie Wonder, who might say, you are the sunshine of my life. Uh, With me and a woman, it's me to the moon. Uh, What is it about the moon? Well, you know, uh, it was uh, up until just a half a century ago, it was an enigma. It had been there for billions of years. And every being that ever walked, The face of the earth shared an encounter, an evening encounter, with the moon. Mm. Almost every day of their life. If one can think of the handful of things that all of us gazed upon together with the same sense of mystery, curiosity, fascination, love, passion, in some case fear, it's the moon. It is the moon that has brought out uh, the most uh, loving of our inspirations. The the moon, uh, the the lunar, is um, from the Latin. It gave us the word lunatic. Uh, For centuries, we were uh, told that um, the full moon could bring out the very worst in people, could evoke the spirit, Uh, The werewolves could be uh, demonic in in its own sense. Still today among certain indigenous people, the appearance of the moon, or more specifically a full solar eclipse, brings about great uh, consternation and disturbance. Animals have been known to just howl at the moon, although I've noticed in recent years there are very few reports of that. I'm standing out on my deck now in Los Angeles. Uh, There are lots of houses not far from where I live, and many of my neighbors have dogs. The area that I live in, which is a little bit rural, my neighbors are coyotes, and the occasional mountain lion, deer, and others. As I speak to you, I have not heard one howl.
2: Something that I have noticed about Bob Dylan he has sung many, many songs that mention the moon. I've never met Mr. Dylan, but most recently, he recorded and made it like a single full moon in empty arms. He recorded and, and put that on his website, which is an old, old song that Sinatra recorded. Mm-hmm. When Bob Dylan comes through your town, do you still go see him in concert? Because I've noticed on your website, com, you're proselytizing for Bob. You are encouraging people out there, please go see Bob Dylan in concert. You believe in his concerts. Um, I
1: believe in his, his artistry and his magic and his performance and his continuity. And I believe that he might be the last link in the chain. So I encourage, especially... Younger people who were who were not raised with him to avail themselves of this opportunity while Bob is still uh, touring, which I presume he will be doing until the final encore. In answer to your question, yes, uh, when he's in uh, Los Angeles, of course I make it my business to go to see him. I'm, uh, look, I've traveled with him throughout Europe, and I probably have uh, seen him perform live 50, 60, 70 times. When I was working with him, a lot of those times I was backstage doing the kinds of things that I was doing. However, when I knew that there were certain songs that were about to be played, either because I saw a playlist. Before he went on, or I heard first few notes of a piece that particularly resonated in my heart, I of course just walked to the back of the auditorium and stood there transfixed, listening to him and watching him and feeling not only his mic applies to him, but watching the audience, looking at the audience, seeing how they're affected and how they're touched noticing the different types of people that are in the arena with me. I've seen Bob perform before 80, 90,000 people. have seen him perform in a nightclub-like setting. And when he is doing what he is doing, and he is completely in the moment, one cannot avert their eyes or ears from the uniqueness of the performance. So, yes, I seldom uh, miss an appearance of him. I've never grown tired of music and certainly have never grown tired of the man. Our special
2: guest tonight is Elliot Mintz. On your website, which for anyone listening, they can visit this website. It's completely free, elliottmintz.com. On that website, the flagship interview, the first thing, It's kind of like the introductory course, if you will. It's an extensive interview that you do, and you're being interviewed by the famed DJ Jim Ladd. I wanted you to tell everyone, what are your recollections of that night, of the night? Because you, and I'm assuming that it was all one night, it looked like it was, you covered a lot of ground.
1: We did two interviews. We did one interview, just Jim and I uh, talking, and it was a long two, three hour interview. And at the end of the interview, Jim said, "Uh, look, there's so many other questions I want to ask you, but it was two or three o'clock in the morning, you know me. And he had to get home, but he said, we should try and do this again sometime and go into greater depth. I thought that we had pretty much done it. In fact, that first interview with Jim was edited, and um, I'm debating right now whether or not we should place some of those segments on YouTube because there are things discussed in that first one that I never got around to in the second. But we finished that interview, and not long after that, I met a um, a young web designer who I'll be talking to you about in a little while, and I showed him what we had taped that night with the two cameras. And he said, you know, this is kind of interesting, but basically you just have two talking heads going back and forth, his language, and uh, don't know really who the heck you are, and there are no examples of what you've done. So you might consider doing another conversation with Jim that could be intercut with videos and audio tapes and stuff from your archives and photographs and to make it uh, a little bit more intriguing than just to talking to him. That led to me inviting Jim back to the house a few weeks later where we sat. It was all done in one evening. I think we taped Six hours that night, it was a a two-and-a-half-bottle-shard evening. (laughs) Because remember when the crew left at around 3.30 in the morning and I was kind of cleaning up, I did notice, I noticed the bottles that were directly behind the speaker, which was the platform that the Tiffany lamp was standing on. And it was very long. It was very intense. Jim exercised tremendous patience. He obviously took a nap in the afternoon to prepare himself for that. But I was determined, Paul, I was determined to tell my tale once completely so I would not have to revisit those experiences again. And I simply told Jim he should feel free to Asked me anything and everything that he ever wanted to ask me. Uh, no holds barred. There would never be a no comment in my heart. And that's how that, uh, on the website, it's called Mince on uh, Mince. A homage, in a way, to blonde and blonde. And I wanted it done. Also, in the old days, when people uh, would sell... Hoover vacuum cleaners, door to door, in uh, media and in marketing and in sales, they tell the story that uh, when Hoover introduced their stand-up vacuum cleaner, salesmen would show up at the door, they would knock on the door, and they would say to the housewife who was at home in the afternoon, look, I've got this wonderful machine that will take all of the dirt and dust off of your carpeting uh, and floors, And if you let me come in for just a minute, I'll demonstrate the product for you. And obviously, tens of thousands said, sure, come on in. The man would come in. He would toss a little bag of dirt on the carpet, plug in the Hoover, go back and forth for fifteen, twenty seconds, allow the housewife to do the same. The dirt was gone. And he would say for $39 or whatever it costs, you can have this marvelous device. Frankly, I don't know how people got dirt out of their carpet before the invention of the vacuum cleaner, something worthy of research in a very quiet evening. And that was how the Hoover vacuum cleaner became a household product. In media, one of the lessons learned is if you want people to trust a product, you have to get them to trust the salesman who knocked on the door. Imagine today if somebody walked up to your front door and knocked on the door and said they were, you know, selling a back cleaner. Would you let them inside so they can throw some dirt on you? And, you know, people hang up on uh, telemarketers. They would slam their door. It was in that first moment when the salesman would have to convince the housewife who he was that she was safe. He had something to deliver, and perhaps it would enhance her life, and he had a 30- or 60-second soundbite and opportunity to do that. Mince & mints. in my website, is modeled after the Hoover vacuum cleaner to some degree, but before you pay any attention to the 100 hours of content that I present on the website, maybe it's important to know a little something about the guy who did the stuff and put it together and who's giving it to you for free. Huh. Maybe maybe you've got to trust me a little, but I'm not going to send you astray. Maybe you have to trust me that halfway through a sign would come up. If you want more, send $8 a month to this post office box address. <laughs> maybe if you knew something more about me and how I felt about the world, But you might feel a camaraderie with me and say, you know, I kind of see things very much like that guy, or I don't, but I find what he says to be intriguing. I'd like to know a little bit more about his world, his experiences, and the voices in people that brought him to the tentative conclusions that he's sharing with me. That's the purpose of Mints on Mints. You were just talking about
2: voices. One of the voices that one might find on com is a very hypnotic voice. This man, I asked you who had made the biggest influence, and you said it was him. And this man was Jack Garris. What was
1: Jack Garris like to be around? Jack Garris was my very first spiritual teacher. He was a remarkable, remarkable man and left behind a series of recordings. He passed uh, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, if memory serves, more recently. Uh, He was certainly never a superstar. He wrote one book that had only modest sales. He lived in the valley with his wonderful wife, Jeanette, and he was the one who uh, set me on the path. I would uh, later... Make arrangements for him to do a, a radio show every Sunday on the first station I ever worked on, KPFK Radio. He was, he never proselytized. He never sold any faith trip. Best of my knowledge, he had no specific allegiance to any faith group. He was a scholar who studied the world of spiritualism, metaphysics, and religion. Had one of the greatest libraries I ever saw on the subject. It was in his uh, garage. Converted his garage into an old library. It was right next to a little barnyard he had. It was a tiny little house in the valley. And he would record his radio shows in the barnyard where there would be geese and goats. We had an open-door policy. When he was in the library, the door would be open in case any of the goats or geese or other animals wanted to come in. They would occasionally make sounds or connect you on some level. He uh, taught about teaching. They were comprised of dozens of conversations I would have with him and his wife, Jeanette, usually over a dinner in a place called Reseda, California. He taught me how to question, how to listen. These are uh, spiritual things. He directed me towards certain teachers, books, philosophies, religions, and just asked asked me to approach it all with an open heart.
2: Did he ever discuss with you the time that he worked with Cecil B. DeMille?
1: In passing, he said that during the course of his life, uh, he was a, briefly, a Hollywood screenplay writer. And I said, oh, well, that's intriguing. Did you uh, write any movies that I might have seen? I said, well, I worked with Cecil on The Ten Commandments. <laughs> that's such an incredible it's thing. He kind of was a throwaway line over an organic dinner. <laughs> where he taught me how to milk a goat. And... um I kind of looked up um, the soup and I said, you worked with Cecil B. DeMille and helped write the Ten Commandments for the movies? He said, yeah, but that was a long time ago, and then he went on to another subject. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Completely disassociated for what some would consider to be a credit What I perceived from Jack as being a distraction, Hmm. a lifetime of metaphysical pursuits. If ever there was somebody who was not part of Hollywood, it was Jack Garris. Hmm. We all have to earn a living. He never sold anything. Uh, He would have classes at his house informally for people who want to learn. His only book was called The Wayless Way. People would listen to him on Sunday mornings. He would just sit in front of a microphone in his uh, garage library, and he would talk extemporaneously. And then he would do four or five of those programs, bring the tapes to the radio station, and they would be played. Currently, for those who are interested, there's a wonderful radio program called The Roy of Hollywood Show. It is broadcast nightly from midnight to 5 a.m. over KPFK radio in Los Angeles. And that program is streamed along with the other KPFK programs on the internet. So you can listen to Roy of Hollywood who presents spoken art He's not a disc jockey, it's not a talk show with telephones, but he has access to the most marvelous collection of the most intriguing people in the world. Some are with us, and some of them have passed, and he frequently plays recordings of Jack Garris. So... If any people who visit my website and listen to my conversations with Jack Garris say, oh, this is cool, I want more, I would direct them to the Roy of Hollywood show on KPFK.
2: As a matter of fact, Roy of Hollywood is someone that I find intriguing, and for this reason, one would assume, because of the nature of his program, that he has spent a great deal of his life listening. He has heard from an enormous number of people. I remember reading an article where he said, I like to listen. I like to listen to what I play. Not too long ago, Roy of Hollywood played our first interview, you and I, the first Elliot Mintz interview that I did. He played it on KPFK his show, Something's Happening. So I'm asking you, Elliot, for someone who has not met Roy of Hollywood, according to you, what is the essence of this guy, Roy Tuckman?
1: I don't know. And he's very shy when it comes to revelation having to do with his own identity and persona. I could never imagine him doing a Roy on Roy interview. In fact, I've never read an interview with Roy, and he keeps um, his private life pretty much to himself and allows these uh, marvelous broadcasts to speak for themselves. In the old days, I used to go to do this program each year when this radio station, which was a listen- is a listener-supported station, like public broadcasting people who like what they hear, spend in money. That's how the station stays on the air and does not have to sell any advertisement. And I probably did the program for five or six years where I would come by and help in the fundraising ventures. Outside of meeting with Roy in person on the radio, I think I only had one dinner with him. We went out for a meal, and of course, we tape recorded the conversation. <laughs> so it was part, part meal, part broadcast. A little bit like my dinner with Andre was the concept, except I lacked the, uh, the rich history that uh, Andre imported upon the person who he was dining with at the time. So I know very little about Roy, his private life, his personal philosophy. He obviously wants it that way. I'll honor that. However, as I'm now beginning to talk a little bit about the the website, and I've been advised it's a good idea to do a number of interviews just to let people know it's there, I will call Roy and ask if we can have a chat. And maybe, just maybe, if he's willing, I might say, how do you feel about going out and having a meal together or having a shard and getting to know who he is? Because he is clearly a man. There's Roy Tuchman in Los Angeles, and there's Bob Fass in New York. He does a late-night show on WBAI radio. These fellas have been broadcasting for 20, 30, 40 years. Spoken arts shows, again. And, And none of them are getting rich off of it. This is a survival radio. It's a higher calling. It's the sharing of the sound of the tribal drum. It is the last outpost of broadcast communication before it all kind of disappears into Miley uh, Cyrusville. I would like to know more about the people, and uh, I think that their tales should be chronicled as well. You were talking about
2: how there's not a lot known about Roy Tuckman, and I located an interview he did with Jay Kugelman, and I recall very vividly something he said in the interview. He said, you know, I I, I tried to tell people, like the the X-Files, the television show, used to say, the truth is out there. And I like to say, the truth is within. So I'm curious about this, Elliot. What you learned from Jack Garris and your experiences with meditation, did that ever intersect? Did meditation ever intersect with your interviewing? with your passion for
1: interviewing. Yes. The the, 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 the short answer is yes. Meditation teaches you, among other things, how to listen, how to be still, how to turn off the endless soundtrack in your brain, how to tune out the cacophony of sonic input that we all move through, to be very, very still, Still, with an open heart, those are, just part, those are just some of the things that the meditative experience uh, brings into certain people's lives. So, of course, meditation is not a goal-oriented pursuit. Don't meditate as to how to put a new Porsche in the garage. You don't use meditation to put in a good word that you're going to find a job next month that falls more closely into prayer. And I have said from time to time that prayer is when you ask of God. Meditation is when you listen to God. So with meditation, in its simplest form, it teaches you how to first shut up, get out of the way, open your heart, your chakras, to absorb whatever appears without judgment. In answer to your question, I apply all of those edicts to the interviewing experience. When I'm interviewing somebody, you know, I don't do it anymore because I'm fully uh, at, at my retirement point here. It's hard for used to be at my doorstep. When I was interviewing people, and I did interview over 2,000 people Part of what I tried to do was to shut up, get out of the way, and let people express themselves without interruptions, without challenging them, to let them have their moments. So the meditative experience was extremely, extremely helpful during the broadcast years. On the note of the broadcast years,
2: the first interview that we did together We talked a little bit about the Lost Linen Tapes. There's some content on ElliotMintz.com about the Lost Linen Tapes. For anyone that's out there, that's kind of how I became aware of Elliot Mintz, was a number of bootleg recordings of the Lost Linen Tapes that completely and totally drew me in. We talked about it last time, and I didn't ask this question last time, but I wanted to. So I'm asking it to you now. How did it feel when you put together the last episode of The Lost Linen Tapes?
1: It was difficult for me. The reality was I had done, I don't know, something like 200 broadcasts, 200 hours of this series, which was a collection of unreleased John Lennon material from rehearsal tapes to outtakes to spoken word recordings to interviews with other people that he interacted with. It was the most, com- I can say it with an ego attachment, but simply the most extensive radio biography ever presented that any human being in the course of broadcasting There are not many who would be able to sustain 200 hours of examination over a four-year period. It wasn't me. I mean, I just introduced segments or explained how to or rehearsal tape we were listening to from what album, you know, that kind of. But when it came time to do the last one, because we'd run out of tape, It's just X amount of tape. I mean, I I went to uh, New York and uh, Yoko allowed me to go through the Dakota building, from the basement to the old bedroom to drawers in the house and office where I'd find cassette tapes. And she just said, take whatever you find, make radio shows from them, allow people to listen and to share. That was how the concept originated. When I reached the last tape, I knew that you know anything beyond that would be padding. And the Lost Lemon Tapes was followed briefly with another radio show called The Beatle Years, which I hosted as well, which was more along the line of Breakfast with the Beatles and more along the line of you know, an overview of the group, but in that area, of course, I could not play any outtakes or any of the material involving the other, the way that's all copyrighted and whatever you want to call it, you know, it belongs to them. Yoko gave me permission to air the material on John, but it was different with the Beatle years. So whereas the Beatle years was a good primer and I think help people understand the phenomena who may not have been there first time around. Uh, it was not like Lost Lemon. The last radio show I did where I it was basically a goodbye and then a little tease at the end indicating that this would morph into the Beatles. I remember leaving the radio station which was located near Culver City, California, not far from here, and if memory serves, I uh, stopped at a local bar in that area that I had never been to before. Unlike me, and uh, walked in and just ordered a glass of chardonnay and reflected about you know the previous four years. At least once a week, I would drive to the city, uh, sit behind a microphone, do the do the stuff. The first episode of that show. Was listened to by more than six million people. The show would eventually be syndicated into other places around the globe. It was very popular in Australia, I'm told. Yes, I know that there is a bootleg uh, market for those programs on the Internet, but obviously I can't and wouldn't promote that kind of thing because, uh, well, it's not kosher. I do know that there are fans who trade recordings and who really enjoyed the program. I certainly understand that. But on my website, of course, I couldn't rebroadcast any of those those programs.
2: The engineer and co-producer of the show, this show for many, many years, he would tell me stories about waking up very early in the morning when it was broadcast. And he would wake up and he would record the lost linen tapes. <laughs> and that all came to an end because of a relationship that he entered into with a woman. <laughs> and that he, but he was a religious listener, the lost linen tapes. That was what got me started on listening. What, I, I thought, was,
1: what, what, what happened between him and the woman? Did the woman object to the fact that he would wake up early in the morning and leave her <laughs> to go to the radio to record my radio show?
2: Well, I think what was happening was he was becoming distracted by her.
1: you <laughs> just put. Was he, was he becoming distracted by her or by the broadcasts?
2: No, 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 no. He would do this every single morning, and then I'm guessing what happened was he was occupying his time with something else when he entered into this relationship. I'm trying
1: to keep this PC. <laughs> I, 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 I somehow just feel that there is a priority uh, should, uh, <laughs> taking place. Dear, I'd like to give you one more kiss, but uh, there's an ultimate take of um, instant karma that I've got to, you know, make a cassette of. I, I, I do not know who we're speaking of and don't, don't wish to know. And the relationship, of course, is none of my business, but Never uh, leave a woman who you're involved with intimately to make a dub of a radio show. I think that that's kind of an an edict that we should apply to the male-female dynamic.
2: (laughs) I think that there are many people, both genders, who concur.
1: How does Elliot
2: Mintz define love?
1: Placing someone else's needs, desires, passions, insecurities, and everything just a few steps ahead of your own. Love is about surrender. Uh, When I say to somebody, I love you, that's a declaration. If I say to somebody, how can I love you more? How can I demonstrate the extent and depth of my passion for you? That's more. It's placing yourself second. Now, if you say it to the right person, they'll say, we're partners. It's 50-50. It's a mirror image. And you would try to, you try to achieve a point in the center where both of you are reflecting each other's passion. It has to do with the sound of two hearts beating as one. Uh, it, it's been described exquisitely by people like John Lilly and Lisa Lyon and others who speak of the dyadic relationship the dyadic relationship. That is that you create a dyad with someone where the line between I'm using this in the traditional sense at the risk of sounding politically incorrect, but the line dividing the man and the woman becomes secondary. I remember that frequently John Lennon and Yoko Ono would refer to themselves as John Yoko, as one word, and for a long time the world thought of them as John Yoko. It wasn't where one began, the other one, and ended, where the other one began. It was this amalgamation in a dyadic relationship, of course you still retain all of those things that are you, but it's combined with a new unit. I remember uh, speaking to um, a woman who I knew well who was involved in a dyadic relationship, and she told me that when the phone rang, let's refer to her as uh, Jane, let's refer to the man she was in love with as Bill, When the phone would ring and somebody would say to Jane, Hi, I'd like to talk to Bill. She would say, you are. Huh. So the the dyadic relationship is a a supreme extension, probably of the definition that you were seeking. So I'll I'll slip backwards before I get into Tantra and just say that placing the one you love Slightly ahead of you is a pretty good model as to what the essence of love is about. Women understand this better because they do it daily with their children. Single moms really get it. Single moms have to decide, well, do I want to really do something just for me? call a babysitter and um, go to a a movie with a friend or go on date? Or do I want to be a present mom during my child's formative years? Men are not as in touch with that, I don't think. That's why they say that uh, the female is the lioness, you know. They, They are so in touch with the heartbeats But their baby, well, love has to do with being in touch with the heartbeats of your lover.
2: Elliot, how do you define good communication?
1: Listen twice as much as you speak. You can fill in the missing spaces later. Be able to listen to people without judgment or imposing your own values and beliefs upon something that they say. Recently, I was uh, I listened to a lecture by someone who was talking about how you might deal with somebody who is experiencing grief. Somebody comes to you and says that they just lost their mother or father, their husband or wife, having forbid their child. What should be your first methodology of how to deal with that announcement? Well, here's one of the biggies. Don't say it's going to be all right. Don't say you're going to get over it. But time heals everything. Listen. Let them speak. Let them grieve. Another one is don't interject yours. Somebody told you that their cat or their dog of 20 years, 15 years has just passed. Do not Pick that sentence up by saying, Oh, yes, um, I remember when my dog died. Mm. And for you to do a narrative about that, see a lot of that kind of thing on social media, where people take the statement that somebody made and personalize it to conform to their perceptions, which steamrolls over the initial declaration. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just listen, be present, be sensitive, be emotionally available, and when it's time to go, listen to the cues. Fascinating.
2: There's some information there on your website, elliottmintz.com. There's some information there about many different things. Topics relating to media, relating to publicity, even stuff on there about paparazzi. Something that would occur to me is that you've had a lot of interactions dealing with the media, going back to your very early days in radio. When you were interviewing people, you no doubt contacted many people who were associated with press agents publicists, that kind of thing, having been a media consultant yourself, you may be especially qualified to answer the question of who is the best publicist? Who's the best PR person you've ever known?
1: Hmm. Hmm. Think about that for a moment. I never thought of PR as a particularly noble occupation. and some of the best PR people were people who just took the position that they would do anything to make their clients famous. They would bend rules. They would lie. In some cases, pay off journalists. Engage in various behavior that was not all that... I mean, there never was a publicist that Mother Teresa would have retained to represent her. It's a service profession, like all public relations work is, to get people to take an interest in a client or a product. So when I think of people who did it well, it's a double-edged sword. It's kind of like thinking that. Who's the best criminal attorney in the United States? Well, of course, if I was to pick a name, the best criminal attorney would be the criminal attorney who got his client off. Even if he knew that the client may have been guilty of what the person was accused of. does that I guess that makes the person a very good attorney, but uh, not always the best people. I've also known some some excellent criminal defense attorneys who have explained to me that whether or not the client was culpable of committing the crime, it was still their role. It's a defendant. I understand that a doctor who receives uh, a wounded or an injured person who has just been in a, I don't know, a gunfight with the police and in the process uh, may have killed a law enforcement officer and uh, he, he was shot at and he appears in the emergency room on a gurney or a stretcher. Well, it's the role of that doctor he took an oath To do everything he could to preserve the life of the assailant, and I get that too. Uh, Well, in PR, you don't have to take any kind of bull. And most of the people, and uh, I apologize in advance to uh, my former colleagues, uh, you know, who were only, many of whom were very respectable people and real gentlemen uh, and gentle ladies. I may have liked them as people, but I never cared very much for the profession. There were some some superb publicists so Rogers and Cowan. There were publicists from the old days of Hollywood who, you know, they, they would do anything to make their client look good. Today's spin doctors and media people in many cases, lack the passion. It's just become too much of, I don't know, so hard to explain these things without getting myself into trouble by citing examples. I can tell you that today, there's a man, a friend of mine named Michael Levine. He's been a publicist, I don't know, for 30 years, 40 years. He is a very, very honorable man. He has represented dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have won Academy Awards and had their books in the New York Times bestseller list. And he's a person of honor. I'll tell you what makes a great publicist, just occurred to me. It's the person with the conviction of saying no to a prospective client because they know it's a sham. See so if somebody come, you know, in, 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 in the in the heyday of my public relations days and media days, if somebody came to me and said, "Look, I've come up with this uh, new thing that I want you to promote." I don't believe in it. The thing really doesn't work all that much. It's a piece of exercise equipment. It's a phony diet pill. It's a handgun that can be made out of paper or cardboard so you can get through airport security. It's kind of the electronic cigarette that really um, may contain some carcinogens. It's all of these things, but look, I really think that you could come up with a plan and I'll pay you 25000 a month uh, to promote it. Well, of course, I would say no. And I've probably turned down more people than I've accepted. And I know some other people in media and PR who would do the same. That would be my definition of a great publicist.
2: Well, what about the best interviewers? Who does Elliot Mint say the best interviewers are?
1: Are or were? How about both? Today, Christiana and Poor who you see on CNN and occasionally on 60 Minutes, is one of the uh, very, very best interviewers. She's excellent. Her style and her technique is, I mean, that's the bar that you have to reach. I think that Charlie Rose does uh, a, a fabulous job at what he does. Bill Moyers is a man who gave us the extraordinary series of the interviews with Joseph Campbell that's available on YouTube and, and, and DVDs and all the ways to get things. I always admired him and I admired his style tremendously. And those are three names that come to mind immediately. In the old days, uh, and I guess I can refer to the old days as well, I liked Jack Parr because of his natural curiosity. I liked Mike Wallace because he knew how to extract information. He was tough and, you know, certainly wasn't my style. Uh, but if you were a bad guy and uh, was foolish enough to sit down with Mike Wallace to try and spin your story about what you were doing in a telemarketing boiler room, uh, Wallace was good at getting to the heart of the matter. David Susskind uh, was one of the pioneers in television. I liked the way Steve Allen had interchanges and exchanges with people. He was very conversational. In a very underrated category, Hugh Hefner, in the uh, probably early 60s, hosted a program, a television show called Playboy After Dark, where he recreated a living room scene and invited jazz musicians and comedians, people like uh, Mort Saul and Bruce, and he would engage them in conversation. I thought he did a really fine job at that. Those are the ones that come to my mind immediately. It's also a dying art. A dying art, partially because people don't take the time to listen. Larry King was very non judgmental in his uh, approach in broadcasting, and I liked him very much for that reason. He allowed people to speak, which is why so many people went to see him. One of the criticisms that was lodged against him was that he only asked softball questions I heard that many times said he I didn't know why it was necessary to always ask hardball questions an interview doesn't have to be a deposition I mean that was something that Mike Wallace specialized in Chris Wallace does the same but I think he's more arrogant I tend to like conversations more than interviews By the way, among the five things, and there are only five that I do well, interviewing was one of my skills. I can say that unabashedly, that when it came to that form of exchange, I was pretty good at it.
2: On that note, when somebody goes on your website, elliottmintz.com, you're going to find a couple of... Fairly recent filmed conversations that you had, you do an interview with a woman who's written a number of books. It's on the website. It's a section called Self-Publish Your Book. There's other conversations that you have with different people. Although you've kind of gone on to another
1: chapter in your life, in your heart, are you still an interviewer? In my heart, I'm still a listener. And uh, sometimes when I'm with friends, and I'm really curious about something that they're speaking about, and I bombard them with questions, uh, they sometimes say, Elliot, is this an interview? Do you have a tape recorder running somewhere? <laughs> there, there are some things, you know, that just don't leave you. I just find that just pouring myself another glass of shard in the second call. <inaudible> The third glass for anybody who's keeping count, in the website, there is a section that we call fireside chats. The fireside chats, basically, is to allow people to kind of eavesdrop as to what it's like at my house when I invite a friend over to sit and talk. It's more of a conversation than an interview. Although, you know, there's a subtle line between the two. You will find that in my interviews, I rarely have ever given an opinion. In the fireside chat, I um, took my hand a couple of times. Just walking outside here on the deck now to look at the hormone as we're speaking. In the fireside chats, yes, there's a conversation with a woman named Jen Ashton who uh, teaches people how to self-publish their own books. She was very successful publishing stories about erotica. That was her specialty. A single mom raising a child who hit bottom, who I met, who I liked, and uh, who overnight uh, amassed an enormous amount of attention, money, and sales just by self-publishing her stories the reason for me inviting her to sit by the fireplace was to infuse other people with the knowledge that they have that ability, that we all know something about something. And forget about looking for a literary agent. Forget about trying to convince a New York publishing house to publish your work. Forget about putting up your own money to... Uh, buy 5,000 books from some organization, some company, and it's up to you to sell them. She teaches you how to self-publish, put the material online, and sell it yourself. And I was hoping that uh, that conversation would open the door for other people, primarily women, single women with a tale to tell as to how they could do the same. That's why Jen came to the house and. I'm hoping that people will go to the site, listen to her tale, and say, you know, there are things that occurred in my life that I think I could incorporate, as well as people who say, I'm a good photographer. I've taken pictures. Maybe I can self-publish a book about my own pictures, as well as a plumber who might say, you know, I'd like to put together a little booklet, 40 or 50 pages, as to how to fix the things in your house that require plumbing. Without calling somebody to come to your place for $60 an hour to do it. And I want to sell it on Amazon.com for $4 a piece. And I'm hoping that 10,000 people will click yes. And I'll make $40,000 while I'm sleeping. And I, and I invited uh, Marianne Williamson to discuss the things that she talks about having to do with uh, spiritualism, of course, and miracles and her life. I invited Sean O'Neill Lennon to come by because he's been to my house hundreds of times. I love him. He is brilliant. He is wonderful. He is funny. And I just thought, I don't want to be selfish here. Let's share what a night would be like if you, Sean O'Neill Lennon, came to your house. And so it is with a number of the fireside chats, including some that have... um, uh, some tragic stories to them. There is an there is a fireside chat that takes place having to do with a subject called Rett syndrome, R E T T S Y N D R O M. Rett syndrome. It is a combination of the more advanced forms of autism, coupled with neuromuscular disorder, where it affects little girls usually at the age of three, where you bring a happy, healthy little baby home from the hospital uh, who develops uh, all of her skills like any other little child, and a vocabulary and all the rest of it, and something happens, something happens, and that within a day or two or three, that happy, healthy little girl loses her entire vocabulary. Like somebody pushed delete on download, and she can't walk, she can't move, she can't eat. Ret syndrome. Well, I went to uh, the home of um, a marvelous couple, Heidi and Jonathan Epstein, who are raising a little girl, Hannah, who has ret, more advanced form, of, uh, n- not as advanced the form of Rett as I've just described, but nevertheless. And I spent a day with them shooting videotape and trying to get to the essence of this tragedy. It's called a Parent's Worst Nightmare on the website. I did it specifically because I wanted to create public awareness of something that most people have never heard of. And in the process to direct people to an organization called the Ritz Syndrome Research Trust, uh, which is working to put an end to this horror. 97% of every dollar raised by them goes directly to science. Two, three staff members. playing for change. And a man who uh, records uh, homeless or street musicians, takes the music, makes DVDs, sells them, uses the money to build music schools so children can learn how to make their own music. Yes, the, the fireside chats are chats and conversations with people I would have, whether or not I had a website. Those are the kinds of folks that I have come to visit me, and those are the kinds of discussions that we have, and those are the subjects that are of great importance to me. Our
2: conversation tonight is with Elliot Mintz. Your website is free. For anyone out there that wants to view the website, it's elliottmintz.com. In an interview not too long ago, Livingston Taylor said, money is a poor substitute for the creative process. Hmm. How does it feel to know that people, and you're seeing this interaction on Facebook and so forth, that people are being able to see the interviews that you did throughout your life It can be entertainment. It can be education. How does it feel when you know that people, this entire library, it's just you're opening it up? What do you think about now that it's open?
1: Uh, And by the way, it's only partially open. It's about as much as I could handle during the first go around. I think we've put up 100 or 150 hours. I've never actually counted it. Couldn't imagine anybody who would. But Paul, I have to tell you that I have maybe... 700 more hours of material that has not been identified, labeled, digitalized, classified. They're just in boxes, unmarked boxes. I moved very fast during my life and recorded things and took the tapes and just, I never had the time to look back. So it will, it would take years and probably a a professional archivist to go Through the hundreds of hours of um, of stuff that I still can't find, one of the things that uh, disappointed me was there were a couple of things that I wanted to include on the the site when it first went public that I just couldn't find. I knew I had it, and I knew I had seen it, and I had gone through a series of boxes where I thought it might be. But I spent a wonderful, wonderful um, afternoon with Dr. Hunter S. Thompson in the kitchen of uh, Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith's ranch in Malibu, where I just uh, held my little uh, camera and uh, videotaped the conversation with Hunter Thompson and myself. I thought that would be a really nice gift to share with people. Still um, can't quite find it. And hundreds of others. So the website is an ongoing work in progress. I want to get away from it for a while. I want to see, uh, you know, how many people react to what they're seeing. If it's enhancing their lives in some kind of way, if it's meaningful to them. If it is, I'll come back um, with the, the web designer. And we'll go through the process of restoring these tapes, digitalizing them, removing commercials, removing phone numbers, removing... The stuff that doesn't work, trying to hold the tapes together because they're stretched or damaged by the heat. It sometimes can take 10, 15 hours to create a 15 or a 20 minute interview ready for, um, for the web. And right now I'd like to spend a little bit of time going horseback riding and taking my eyes off of the screen. If there is a calling for it, if people's lives are being enhanced by it in some minor way, I'll come back to it. I'll give them more. I like the idea of giving it away. uh, Frankly, I think that if I had charged them uh, for this, it would be a disservice to to the whole concept.
2: During the first interview we had, you told us your favorite Beatles song and your favorite John Lennon song. What song of any artist, if you had to pick one, is the one that means the most to you? And let me qualify that. I mean, truly any melody. It could be an American songbook standard. It could be a classical piece, pop song, jazz tune. The song that resonates the strongest in your heart.
1: As time goes by. Why is that? That's the one that just bounced into my brain when you asked the question. And upon reflection, for all the right reasons, it would be like you asking me about my favorite song, possibly my favorite movie. Possible, Anka. I mean, I'm an old softy when it comes to the movies, and you know, I like um, movies about uh, romance. And I love romantic songs, and I love all the American song classics. I was so pleased when Linda Ronstadt liberated those songs from the closet. Prior to Linda doing her collection of those marvelous 1940s songs, they had been kept uh, in the Dust Bowl somewhere. She let them out. Others started to do the same. Rod Stewart did a wonderful series as well. of These classic, gorgeous uh, songs by... uh, Uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein and uh, Semi Khan and uh, Irving Berlin and Rodgers and Hart and what we call the Tin Pan Alley songs. They they come to my mind immediately. Of course, there are rock songs that were anthems to my generation, which I uh, love and play all the time. I was in the car yesterday and took the top and cranked up the greatest hits of Jackson Brown and listened to him sing The Pretender and Linda Paloma and those listening to Frank Sinatra doing Only the Lonely uh, in the Late Night Hours is extraordinary. Do you know the first live recording that was ever done, Paul? The first album that was done outside of the studio where they took the microphones and brought them someplace else? Which one was that? Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall. Have you ever heard that album? I have indeed. I didn't know that that was the first. That was the first time, to my knowledge. You know, we will be corrected, of course, if I got this one wrong. <laughs> I believe that was the case. And if you, and by the way, it's much better to listen to it on disc, on vinyl, than CD. It is a really poor transfer. A, a great deal of the audience reaction was truncated to make space on the disc, but on vinyl. That puts you in Carnegie Hall when Judy Garland did that exquisite concert. Well, there are times when I just have to hear Over the Rainbow and go to the vinyl and go to the last 15 minutes of that concert. And she touches me tremendously, as well as her signature songs. There are dozens of them. Music plays an incredibly important part of my life. I couldn't imagine my life without music. that business about if you had if you had to surrender one of your five senses, which would be always problematic, always problematic, uh, but the one that uh, would remain number five would be the ability to hear because to be deprived of the sound of music. That's like living without food or water. I have music playing almost all the time, wherever I am, unless I'm in meditation, even if it's just in the background. I like the melodies of life. I like where music takes me. Songs are mini-biographies. They tell the tales of the person who wrote them. In some cases the pretty people who sing them, in the best cases a little bit of both. And also in in the music department I love jazz and I love classical music and play as much of those two genres as I do the standards or the rock songs. I like Japanese chocolate music. I like music from foreign lands. I like Middle Eastern music. The only kind of music that I've not been able to totally embrace as I know I should is opera. I would love to develop a greater clarity and and connection to opera. It hasn't happened yet. Summer's not over. If there was
2: a theme song, keeping with the theme here of music, if there was a song that best describes you, it could have lyrics or it could be an instrumental, what would be the song that would best describe
1: you? It's a great, great question. Why didn't I ever ask that question when I was doing this stuff? Give me a second. Hmm. Song that would best describe me. I don't know. I mean, the, the two obvious knee jerk responses would be Imagine by John and Chimes of Freedom by Bob because, because of all the obvious reasons. But they would describe a Part of me, you know, the wish aspirations of me, the the hidden, uh, not the hidden, but the spoken longings, but the song about me, which I think goes to the heart of your question, I don't know if I've heard it yet. Maybe I should write it.
2: Maybe. Elliot, again, it's been a very, very fascinating conversation. I've enjoyed it so, so much, but I always end the same way. I always end very open. For anyone who's listening, wherever they are and whenever they hear this, what do you want to say to them? Well, two
1: things. One, I want to make an addendum to an earlier question you asked when I was indicating some of my favorite interviewers. I'd like to insert your name in that pastiche. Uh, because as I mentioned to you during our first encounter, I think that you are superb at what you do and encourage you to do more. I think you were a marvelous, marvelous interviewer. So that's the addendum. Thank you. You're welcome, Paul. And as far as the other, this is the first interview that I've done now that the website is complete and available on mobile devices and all the stuff. And I I intend to do a few more, but I I wanted to do this one with you. Because when we first spoke, you got it. I think you really got the essence of who I was in terms of broadcasting, in terms of being a media consultant. I listened to the radio uh, show that you put together. I thought it was really uh, comprehensive and intelligent and sophisticated and classy uh, more so than I deserved. So I invite people to sample the site. And again, uh, this is free. I don't put a dollar in my pocket and I am not selling any kind of uh, trip. I'm not telling anybody what to believe or uh, not believe. It's just a gift. I was fortunate enough to meet and talk with and in some cases become friends with some really extraordinary people. To me, it's just an honor to share the gift with others. And I hope that some people will be touched by it. And that's the reason that uh, I invite you to to visit the website. I'd be very interested in your your comments, your thoughts, your impressions. And beyond that, Nobody is more anxious or interested or curious as to where the next step on the yellow brick road will take me. So now that the website is, for the most part, complete, my slate is clean again. The blackboard does not have any scratches upon it. And we will see what Destiny's hand places on the agenda for what's to come. Elliot,
2: first of all, thank you very much again for giving us this interview, and I only hope that the next interview isn't as many years away as the last one was.
1: Farewells. You have my phone number, and you are always welcome to call, Paul. <laughs> you're, you're one of the people I will uh, speak with anytime you have any curiosity about anything that I might be involved in.
2: Farewell is a beautiful and soft word, and yet it is a horrible and a heavy thing too, so we won't say farewell. We will say so long
1: So long, Paul Ba <speaking> Boo <in Spanish> The good back goodbye.